it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 569 for October 21st, 2018, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome to the show Darren Beyer. Darren is a former NASA space shuttle engineer. You got to love that. And his background is absolutely amazing. And after that, though, he's gone into a completely different field. He is now a science fiction author, and he says he's bringing science back to science fiction. I mean, that tells you he's our people, right? Anyway, welcome to the show, Darren. Oh, very happy to be here. Darren and I uh, chatted what I thought was going to be briefly on Skype just to make a connection. And I think we chatted on text for at least a half an hour just to start with. Oh, at least that, and enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> so I think uh, uh, we'll we'll probably go quite a while. We just finished talking about our dog, so David Roth will want to be listen, listening. He's got a, a lab and a golden, so, uh, you know, again, our people. And cats, too, so something for everybody. <laughs> so I, I wanted to start with the uh, NASA, and then we'll work into science fiction. Uh, what led you to become an engineer working on the space shuttle? You know, that it dates back to one of my earliest memories uh, in, in my mother got me up in the middle of the night. We had, we had lived overseas when I was really young. Uh, we were in India and Nepal, oh, wow. uh, and then, uh, moved back to the States outside of, uh, DC. I think I, I was, must've been six years old. And one of the Apollo missions was, they were having live coverage from, uh, the astronauts stepping onto the moon. Uh, and, uh, she got me up in the middle of the night and we were watching this on a, 19 inch black and white TV, the one with the little curvy edges. And, mm. uh, and I just became wrapped with it. And so I knew right from that point on that I was going to go to school. I was going to get involved with the space program and everything I did from that point forward, uh, with what I studied, uh, you know, where I went to school, everything was all geared towards, uh, joining NASA and, getting involved with the space shuttle, which is, uh, which is exactly what I did and been, been happy about that. Wow. That's, that's crazy to have it, that direction for that long. I definitely, I lived in the, the era of uh, man walking on the moon. So my earliest memory is the little black and white TV with uh, man walking on the moon. That was uh, that was a big influence, but I didn't end up a, a shuttle engineer. <laughs> well, well, my, I do have to say that my earliest black and white TV memory was on my grandfather's TV and we played Pong. So that's the earliest black and white, but this was my second one. <laughs> I love it. So you come by it honestly. So you're a, a mechanical engineer, is that right? So actually I studied aerospace uh, engineering, but the two are pretty darn similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so what what did you do working on the shuttles? What was your involvement with them? So I, 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 I do have to say, I think I had one of the coolest jobs uh, in NASA. Um, got very lucky. I just happened to really fall into it. Uh, and basically NASA primarily is an oversight agency. So contractors do all the hands-on work and, uh, and the, the NASA engineers are making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and they're doing the things that the way they're supposed to. And, uh, what happened in, uh, if you look at, you know, kind of the chronology of NASA, you had a big, huge buildup for the Apollo program. Uh, and then things started, you know, started to slow down as shuttles started to wind up um, and a lot of engineers left, but they really didn't hire anybody new. And then shuttle started and, and they hired a few people, but not a whole lot. And then Challenger happened. And during the time between Challenger and return to flight, there were a significant number of retirements from all the Apollo era engineers, which mm -hmm. means they had to bring in a bunch of new people. So now you have a bunch of 20 somethings who know absolutely nothing about the program. 
and you're asking them to oversee contractors doing the work. Oh, but, and, but on the good side, when you're 20, you think you know everything. So well, you don't well, that's know true. what you don't know. Right? <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Uh, and so, so what they ended up doing was they decided, well, we're going to create this um, organization where we're going to train engineers. They're going to work right alongside their, um, their counterparts, their, their contractor counterparts. Essentially, they're doing the same job. Uh, they're just different sides of the same organization. It just be like contractor. Okay, you're going to work, you know, experiment number one, and the NASA guy work experiment number two. But we did, you know, the exact same. Uh, essentially, we were we were one organization. We just had different badges. Uh, and the other cool thing was we got to do this. They didn't. Is they wanted us trained in all the the nifty gizmos and gadgets that we'd be using. So I got trained in driving a forklift, upright tiger, <laughs> crane operations, even turning torque wrenches. It didn't mean that we actually did that. It just mean, you know, we got trained in it. Although we were the only group on the entire space center, we had special dispensation with the unions that we could get oh, up there and do yeah. that. Because otherwise, yeah. if an engineer did, oh my gosh, if an engineer did what we were able to do, you'd get written up. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so it was, it was like, like, we actually got to, you know, turn the wrenches on spaceships. So it was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, so the idea was to bring engineers into this thing. And you would uh, work there for maybe a year or two, learn the ropes, and then you'd move out and move on to something else. The problem was with that theory was it was such a cool place to work that nobody left. <laughs> uh, and so I just got really lucky that there was an opening. I was able to get in there and, um, and, and have a great time with it. So essentially what we did was every shuttle mission, every experiment that, that flew on the shuttle, we would put together, test would put on whatever the carrier was. The carrier could be what uh, we would call pallets. They were open to um, the payload base, or they open the payload bay doors and they're open to space. Or there'd be the space lab, which was the enclosed capsule that would connect up to the crew cabin that had a bunch of equipment racks and would put experiments in those. And then the last one we would do are called mid-deck experiments. And these were little boxes that, but roughly the size of a dresser drawer uh, that you would put into the mid-deck of the orbiter. They were typically sort of these self-contained little things that would go on right before uh, launch. So we'd be out there about, you know, 13, 14 hours before launch on average, wow. uh, climbing on the, you know, the shuttle, putting these things in. So you're in a bunny um, suit then. Yeah, we're in a bunny suit, um, climbing around. We, we were literally the second to last people other than the astronauts, the second to last people on board the shuttle, the last people being the ones who actually put the um, the astronauts on board. And then likewise on landing, we were the second to last pe- or second to, second people, I should say, uh, getting onto the, the shuttle because we had to take all this time critical experiments. We had to get them all off. So um, they would go on, you get the astronauts off, uh, and then we would go in and, and start taking out the time critical sites. Wow. Wow. Now, did that give you any interaction with the uh, with the astronauts? I mean, you hold your hand out, help them down the stairs or anything? <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't do it then, but we would do it ahead of time is would do astronaut training um, on the experiments. So that was oh, kind of really? fun, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you, you know the astronaut Katie Coleman, uh, but Katie, Col- Katie Coleman made us cookies one time, which was awesome. So <laughs> we got chocolate chip cookies. Um, I mean, you know, it's, and they're, they're, they're really, I mean, you were great. I mean, the astronauts are great folks and, and, um, uh, and it was really fun to, to get out there and train with them. Wow. That's pretty, yeah, this does sound like a dream job. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're in your twenties and you get to climb around spaceships, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I mean, you had me at, at uh, torque wrench, so you, <laughs> there know, you, go. you could have put jalopy after that and I'd have fun with the torque wrench. 
Wow. So, um, what do you what did you feel were the uh, biggest innovations of the shuttle? I mean, the the basic idea of bringing a spaceship back home is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, and, and having a uh, you know a flying craft that's returning uh, to, to Earth as well. So you know, something that glides back rather than hurdles Plops. through the the you know the atmosphere and in this big ball of fire, right? So. Uh, yeah, that was obviously a big one. Uh, the the reusability, it was mostly reusable. I, I think I would have loved it if it was 100% reusable, but you know the technology we had at the time and on some of the political pressures that were on around budget and stuff just didn't allow that. Uh, but but certainly, you know, that was one. Um, th- this notion of having a a crew cabin that's bigger than a capsule and and being able to you know, go in and interact with experiments inside a laboratory, um, you know, being able to lift big pieces of, uh, you know, the space station up and then bring the craft back down that, that did that. I mean, those are all, uh, you know, were very innovative at first time, obviously, that, that we ever did anything like that. So um, the shuttle gets knocked nowadays because of the accidents that occurred and because it was very expensive and not a ton was reusable. But when you consider that the entire operation was being run, the upgraded computers, as an example, on the thing were, were running the entire shuttle and they were, had like 64K memory. These are the wow. upgraded, the new upgraded ones. The oh original my ones, gosh. It, yeah, the original ones had 16K. Okay. Um, and, and you, you know, and you, you, you see what we could do with kids, that. Kids, ask your, ask your parents what that means, right? Yeah, my, my Apple IIc, which was my first computer, had 64K of memory, and I was very excited about that. And that yeah. was in like 1980 or something. So, um, you know, so, the, so the, there's um, a, a tremendous amount of, of innovation that went into these things. Was it perfect? No, but essentially it was a prototype. It was the first time we'd ever done anything like this. And I think it paved the way for a lot of the stuff we will be seeing uh, you know, coming up in the future. Yeah. Now, a, a big piece of what made it possible was the heat shields. And I know that that obviously is is a topic that brings up sensitive issues with the with the failures. But the heat shields by themselves were were amazing that the temperatures they could be heated to and immediately dissipated the heat. Right. Yeah, well, and, and what was great was when we first got there um, as new engineers, you get taken around to all the different areas of the uh, of the space uh, space uh, the space center, and you get to see things. They took us to the solid rocket booster uh, facility, and they talked about the dangers of static electricity around those, and how you could hold a flame to the solid rocket booster fuel, and it wouldn't ignite. But if you're pulling a piece of plastic off it, that spark could set it off. Uh, they they would take us you know inside the orbiter processing facility and and talk to us about all the you know hazardous um, liquids and fuels and oxidizers and all the other things that have to be there and one of the places they took us was the tile facility um, the couple interesting tidbits about the tile facility number one is that uh, every tile on every orbiter is unique so every orbiter had their own unique tile set and there was no tile that matched. Uh, any other tile on any other order orbit or any other location is almost like a snowflake, right? They're all unique. Why? And the other, um, it just it, it was kind of like the patterns that they came up with. They, the, you know, the, the the little differences, subtle differences in the um, in the in the outer dimensions and everything. You just had to make sure that the tiles were perfectly fit, because okay. if, you know, just a little bit too big of a gap, and you're letting you know superheated gas through, that's going to burn up the the structure. 
so, um, but the other thing they did when they showed us this is they had a guy holding a tile and taking a blowtorch to the other side. And the, the tile oh, is, wow. is, you know, glowing this bright red and he's holding it in his bare hand behind that. And it's, oh, you know, it's, my gosh. and it was like two and a half, three inches thick. So it's just uh, super interesting seeing how much heat those things can dissipate. Yeah. Now, I know um, Canada always gets uh, big credit because they're so good at branding with that uh, with that arm to grab. The <laughs> right, right. Best branding of all time. I'm sorry. Uh, but also very cool. Uh, two things about that. Uh, well, first of all, that that was one of the earlier um, international cooperations that I knew about in, in our space program was how important was that? Uh, I mean, I, personally, I think it was exceedingly important bringing in people. It you know, spreads a lot of goodwill, obviously, around the world when uh, in, a, in a source of pride, uh, you know, for countries that otherwise would have nothing of a space program or very limited space program. I mean, because we had astronauts from a number of different countries, but, you know, getting the uh, the Canadian arm. You know, obviously, you know, it's just strengthening ties and technology between yeah. our two countries. And so, I, I, I mean, personally, I think that was was an exceedingly important aspect of it. And so that sort of got us towards where we are today, where uh, it turns out we we need help to get to the ISS because we don't have a way to get up to the space station right now. Yeah, that's kind of a shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really. Let's talk about that in a minute. I want to personally apologize that you had to go fix the Hubble telescope. Uh, Steve and I worked for the company that that made the lens that needed to have the uh, contact lens put on it. Right. The Hubble telescope. We worked for Hughes Aircraft Company. And I don't know which branch of us screwed it up, but I know it was our fault. So I just wanted to personally apologize <laughs> that you had to go fix that. Well, I, I didn't personally have to fix it. I got, <laughs> I got to, uh, I got, it was one more mission I got to work. So that was positive. You got to uh, tell someone to tighten the bolt that held the, the uh, arm that grabbed the, t- the telescope, right? Yeah. By the way, that, that was not the worst of, of little faux pas that occurred. Um, if I could just go into one, one sure. story, which I think is because a, fr- a good friend of mine was in the payload operations center in Huntsville during this mission. And it was a mission for the tethered satellite. Uh, and this was a, a very cool mission where they would, they had a, uh, satellite. There was about, I don't know, I think of maybe I'm guessing it's, it's memory going by memory. I think it was about three feet, uh, in diameter of the sphere. And it was at the end of a 12 mile cable. And the idea was they would turn the shuttle towards the Earth, un- unravel this um, this satellite, and drop it into the atmosphere, and then um, and then you know sort of gather up a bunch of data. They was they were looking at it as a potential way to generate power because you'd have a uh, you basically build up a bunch of static electricity, and that power differential could you know potentially be used. Um, and Is this so the power they, differential across the length of this cable? Is that what you yes, mean? Yes, exactly. Because you're well, because you're building up all this static by dropping this thing in the atmosphere. Oh, but if you could, oh, if you, you're, if you're you doing could, you're dragging a, a lure. That's <laughs> exactly what it okay. was. And by the way, very apt uh, description because this thing had just like a just like a um, a fishing reel uh, had a guide that went back and forth. And um, they went to go launch. It My the first brain is time. just and going. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. What could, what could, what could go wrong with this? Well, uh, the one thing that could go wrong in the first mission of this was that they, right before launch, they, the company that was responsible for making that reel installed a new bolt, and it was oh. too long. No, never and so install a they, new they, bolt. And so they no, never install, never do that, never push the big red button. And they went to go reel this thing out, and it got about ten feet. 
because that was how much one of the back and forth on the reel was. And it came <laughs> back and it hit that bolt and stopped oh. and, and it would not go any further. So the entire mission Oh, uh, was essentially uh, a scrub bolt. Oh, yeah. that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and then it gets and then it gets better because they ran it again and and they launched it. They got it out there, it was gathering a bunch of great data. My friend was actually on the console watching all the accelerometers and all the position indicators, and he said all of a sudden everything just went, just everything started moving and going. It's supposed to be relatively static, and the things just like and what had happened was it was building up such a charge that it, it, there was enough charge that came up the cable that it grounded <gasps> against oh, the no. base structure and oh, this God. huge arc went across <laughs> and snapped the cable in two. And the thing just went flying off into, um, into the, uh, uh, you know, into the atmosphere and burned up. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was oh, the my. second version of, of that. They did get a lot of good science. I will say they got a good science, but, uh, oh, <laughs> but it's just tragic. Hey, I mean, your original description before you told me what went wrong was that like Wiley e. coyote invented this idea. Like, <laughs> Right. Well, and, and then I thought I was going to get fired because I made a cartoon out of it. So, so there's a there's a far side. Of course, this is before like we had Photoshop and everything where you could do this easily. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did this with paper. I literally was was like taking pieces of paper and putting them together. And there's a far side cartoon where there's a little alien in a in a, uh, in a um, spacecraft. So I pulled him out of that. And then there's another one where there's two astronauts looking outside the window and they see the Earth with a little – it looks like it's a balloon and they have a, a, a string coming off of it. And so what I did was I took the alien and superimposed him cutting through the string and then changed the Earth to the tethered satellite. And, and, the, and the caption is, look, I think we better keep this quiet, the two astronauts are saying to each other. And so uh, so that that got out and was being circulated and the big board came down to – investigate what was going on and my boss's boss's boss put this up on the screen as a joke and and one of the the board members says we are not abused oh i bet so you can't get fired for because he's the one who put it up he's the one who put it up but i was like i'm I'm going around i'm like i'm gonna get fired because i was the one who made the thing but um, but it, it, I mean, it was, you know, all joking aside, we did get some good science out of it, but there was a lot of like, what the hell went wrong with this thing? Yeah. You know, my mother's, one of my mother's favorite sayings was, uh, sometimes you have to laugh cause we're too old to cry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, let's shift gears here. Uh, looking more to the future. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether we should be going to the moon? Like we are fixing to make a plan to go, or should we just go straight to Mars? Uh, I actually believe that the moon is the right spot to go. Uh, yeah. And, and the reason is that, um, first off, I think we should be making a bunch of stuff in space. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's exceedingly inefficient to be launching a bunch of stuff off earth. As a matter of fact, uh, 96%, I did a, did a story on this on my blog, 96% when in the shuttle anyways, 96% of the, um, uh, of the weight that you launch is a combination of fuel oxidizer and the launch vehicle. That means that only 4% oh, of that wow. is, and by the way, the vast majority of that weight is the oxygen. Um, only 4% of that is the actual payload. And so you're, you're spending all of this energy to get a very small amount. And if you can go to the moon first, there's a tremendous amount of mineral wealth on the moon and uh, we can utilize that uh, you can launch it off the moon at a fraction of the cost that it takes to launch it off the Earth. Do you, you can still actually, need all that oxygen, though? 
No, but you can actually use, because there's no air uh, resistance, you could actually use the equivalent of like a catapult on an aircraft carrier. No, no, no. So, Don't you, you need oxygen for the people to be breathing while they're building the parts on the moon? Well, well, you do, but I, I, although there still has to be proven, I'm a believer because they have found water molecules in the form mm-hmm. of ice, you know, on, on the right. uh, in the soil, soil, quote unquote, on the moon. Um, I believe that you could harvest oxygen okay. uh, on the moon. Uh, I, I think that that's going to be, and, and you can also there's also you know essentially you know we turn oxygen into CO2. Well, you can scrub the oxygen back out of the car, you know, take the carbon off and you get, get the O2 back. So, so you can essentially recycle a lot of the stuff. Um, and, uh, and then you can, you can harvest the, the stuff on the moon. You use a big catapult, a mass driver to launch it off the moon. So you don't have to spend really any money to do that. And then you build these things in space. Uh, and, um, and that's a far cheaper way to get materials into space than to launch them off the earth. Asteroid mining is another one. I think that's probably a little more difficult though. Right, right. Okay, well, that sounds good. And then from there, we could still go to Mars, right? But we could get well, there more efficiently. That, that's exactly it. And you, you build. I, I look at the moon as a as a stepping stone, uh, you know, to get there. Not not to build a colony and and to do all the other things, but to 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 use it as a as a facility to assist to get into the other planets. I, and I think Mars is a great place to go. We're fascinated with Mars. I also think there's a tremendous amount of other wealth in the uh, in the solar system from a science perspective, uh, et cetera, to be able to go out and get there's so many cool places <laughs> that we can go. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it'll be centuries before we're able to do that if all we're doing is launching stuff off Earth. Okay. Okay. But you, you can speed that up if we start from the moon, you think? That's my belief. I think I, think I could probably talk, you could find you know, 10 other people who would have 10 different opinions. Uh, that just happens to be mine. <laughs> well, I've heard a lot of people saying that that's, uh, that's the way it's going. But what do you think about the commercial space programs uh, like SpaceX and Blue Origin? And how do you see them sharing the space with NASA? Um, I mean, I think they're originally, I was skeptical. Uh, I think that when you have an entity that's driven by corporate profits, uh, primarily, then you know, do you take into account the necessary safety things, et cetera, especially around people? Um, I, I'm changing my tune on that. I, I think that um, I mean, I, the the one of the, the biggest moments I've had from a space perspective since leaving the space center was watching that amazing Falcon launch and the dual recovery <sighs> of the boosters, and I mean, in the in the car in space, and it's like, you know what? Those guys at SpaceX did it right, oh, and that, and I that was, landing was like I wanted to hear Yezu joy, joy of man's desiring as they landed, and Elon doing this, you know, the the orchestral thing at the end. You know, that was just the most beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I was I, my dogs thought they were I was mad at them because I'm yelling, <laughs> and you know, the, like like just going, yes, this is great, uh, and so so I, I do believe that um, that there's a, a place for commercial stuff in space. I think there still needs to be regulation around it because once we get there, there's all sorts of bad things that can happen, primarily from a science perspective, contamination of different entities, et cetera. Those are the things that I would worry about most. So without regulation, you, you know, like just dropping a bunch of people on Mars, well, you know, what, what happens if you contaminate certain areas and, and you essentially you destroy the ability to get clean science, right? Those are the kind of things you worry about. So maybe uh, that, that balance, though, between – so NASA has to live with all the political stuff that screws it up uh, and then the 
for-profit company has completely different motives and maybe the balance point lands in between. Yeah, I, th- well, I think that that is the case. And, and by the way, that you just mentioned another one, all the political stuff that NASA has to deal with. You know, NASA has a smaller budget dollar, you know, uh, for, for age dollar versus dollar than they had uh, 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their the budget, while it's gone up nominally, has not kept up with inflation and is shrinking. And so I, I look at the private companies as a way around that and, and is allowing us to expand in space quicker than we otherwise would. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all in on, on what, you know, what's going on and how that stuff is happening. It's that innovation. NASA can only go so far. You, you need that private innovation to be able to really make this stuff work. So, uh, so I think it's really good. It's a, the big question again is for me is, you know, can they do it safely and can they, you know, keep these other environments that we're going to be going to, can they keep them relatively intact? And, and, and so we can study them appropriately and understand, you know, or our origins of in the, in the solar system, et cetera. Yeah, you know, we uh, spoke with a gentleman from the SLS program from NASA at, um, I think it was at CES a couple of years ago, and one of the things he said made it really challenging was that the uh, the whims of the administration changed dramatically what needs to be done, and what needs to be done is so far-reaching in time. So, you know, we switched from going to Mars to going to the moon. Well, okay, we had all these plans and they were 20 year plans, but now every four years it can change dramatically what's going to happen. Yeah, that's and that was constantly an issue while we were at um, while I was at NASA and, and the space station, you know, was was one of those. It was, you know, budgets were getting a cut and then things extended and then the cost going up and it got a bad rep when it really shouldn't have. Um, they, you know, there were, there, there are a lot of conflicting priorities and then you'd even get into year to year, you get into the budget mess or, you know, around it. Yeah, and there were a number yeah. of times where we had, um, you know, we, we were going home without pay because, you know, budgets weren't approved and, and that type of thing. And, and that's, it's, it was difficult to deal with, but, um, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, but Hey, it's going to be okay. I don't know that it ever will. I, I, I don't know that that's <laughs> ever going to change. Because it's just too easy for someone to say, I want a, I want, you know, a Space Force and forget going to Mars. Right. I mean, it's just too yeah. easy for that to happen. Yeah. So, again, but maybe that the balance between the commercial programs that maybe are going to be a little more slipshod than the, the strong processes of NASA. But NASA's got these other hampers, you know, maybe maybe combined together. Yeah, I agree. I think that that does that does help spur things along because you. You, you do still get these these long term goals. I mean, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, right? He wants to be sending people to Mars. Um, there's another a number of other companies who want to do you know the same thing or be providing co- uh, components for that. And if they're doing it on their own, then the budgets of the government sort of don't matter. Yeah, I just I, I am glad to see that uh, Jeff Bezos is involved, too, because having all of SpaceX, which clearly comes from the mind of a crazy person. Um, I mean, maybe you need to be crazy to do what he does. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I do like that Blue Origin's out there, too. That makes me a little little more faith in what can happen in the future. Yeah, and that's a really cool. Um, I mean, I hope they they scale it up a little bit, uh, but it's a it's a really cool vehicle, too. I, I, I loved watching uh, the stuff that they were doing, uh, as well. It seems to have a slightly better to date track record of, of successes. Um, and, but they're still, I think they're, you know, earlier in their they haven't landed in, on a barge though yet. Have they? 
No, but they, no, but I don't know. The, the well, landing on, on the it's barge. It's easy on land. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that landing on a barge. I mean, it's fr- frankly, it's like we're going to put it out here. So if it fails, we're not like going to be dropping a, a booster on top of somebody's house. I mean, uh, la- I don't know that landing, uh, quote unquote, on a barge versus landing on a barge sized landing pad in Texas is a whole lot different. Are you saying the land, that kind of land mass in Texas or so much, it doesn't matter. Is that what you just said? <laughs> well, no, well, that, that's probably true too, but, but no, but, but that's where, where, um, Bezos is, uh, Blue Origins is doing their thing is okay. they're, um, you know, they're dropping their, they're landing their stuff at, in, in Texas, but, um, you know, they could land it on a barge if they wanted to. I, I, there's not a whole lot of difference between one or the other. Nah, I don't know. One of them's moving. It's totally, totally harder. <laughs> Unless it's, uh, I, don't know, I think they're anchored though. I think they anchor these things down so that they're they? they're not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know oh, that they're they they're free float. The ocean still well, wobbles. Well, true. <laughs> I true. There's know. a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's let's switch gears entirely here. Um, and it, it, as you did somewhere along the line, you switched over from uh, NASA engineer doing these great things, and now you're a science fiction author. How did how did that happen? Yeah, that's an an interesting one. Um, you know, I don't want to get. Uh, and I don't want to get too political, but um, this stemmed from the, my desire to start writing stemmed from the second Iraq war. And, and I saw that uh, a period of history. I saw that event specifically as sort of this corporate overreach. Um, you, you, you saw this as really being, I saw it, I should say, as being uh, very much driven by corporate interests and the profits that were going to be made. And sure enough, uh, a lot of companies made a lot of money in Iraq, and I think the people of Iraq paid a pretty significant price for that. Um, so I was angry with that. Um, I, I should have just written down on a piece of paper and put it in a time capsule that there were not going to there were there were not nobody was going to find any weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> I knew that that was going to occur. You could see it from the get go. You could see that this stuff was fabricated. Anybody who wasn't caught up in the rah rah of the moment could see that. Um, unfortunately, if you mentioned anything about it, you were, you were counted as unpatriotic or anything else. So it was, it was not a very good time for us, uh, Mm. you know, historically in that regard. Um, and, uh, and I was frustrated by that, by the way, you know, I'm, 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 I'm politically independent. So I, I sit right squarely in the middle. I have views that go on both sides of the aisle on a number of different things. Um, so this was, was not coming from a, you know, a left-leaning political perspective. This was coming from somebody who's, who's relatively independent. And I need, I felt I needed to do something about it. And so what could I do? Well, I can write, I could write a story. And I decided to write a parallel, um, between, um, you know, what went on in the Iraq war, uh, with, with, uh, something that would go on in the future. They say, write about what you know. And I certainly lived and no science fiction, essentially, because I, I worked at, you know, for the years I was at NASA. So I decided to use that as the medium to do it. And I created a parallel with corporate overreach. I created a parallel for oil, et cetera, uh, and put that into uh, into the story. Oh, interesting. So uh, the your first book is called Casimir Bridge, and that's book one of the Angazi series. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> doesn't sound like Benghazi at all, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's actually there's actually a name there's a reason for the name of the of the series too and it and that that word in zulu means sort of hell if i know like you know like what the heck are you doing there hell if i know right i mean it's, it's kind of that thing and there's a reason why why that exists in this in the uh in the oh. series and why that's there 
Interesting. So now you've got a second book in the series, Pathogen Protocol. Uh, give us a, an idea of what uh, what we would get out of these books. Yeah. So, the, so the first one again is sort of the, that parallel, and I and I have a it's a it's a it's a book about corporate and government uh, greed and overreach, and sort of the, the antagonists uh, uh, are out to get what the protagonists have, and the protagonists involve a, a woman uh, reporter who sort of uncovers some of these things that are going on as well as the CEO of, uh, I'll call it the quote unquote good company. Uh, and, um, and so the, the bad guys want what the good guys have. And this is all about engineering a way to go get it through political and, uh, military means. Uh, and so it's a very tight, uh, parallel to, uh, to what happened, uh, in Iraq. So does this uh, take place in space? Um, so it takes place in, uh, there's some space stuff and there's some stuff that takes place on earth and some stuff that takes place on uh, another planet. There's one other habitable planet, uh, that has been found. Uh, and there's a, uh, this is where the good company has decided to, they were the ones who found it and they decided to move their corporate headquarters there in, a, in an effort. Eventually their, their desire is to break away. Um, and there, there's a, reason why this um, planet is habitable. I don't go into it in the first book. I've had a number of people be like, what are the chances that you could have a habitable planet just 57 light years from Earth? And um, and I'll be like, wait, yeah. <laughs> there's a reason behind, tr- trust me as a writer, there's a reason behind all this stuff in the backstory. Uh, and um, uh, so some of it's, again, some of it takes, the first about third of the book takes place on Earth. Um, and then, and uh, and some of this, and some of the that takes place on on the other planet, and then the rest of it is in space or on the other planet. Oh, cool! Now, did I catch that this is a uh, female lead in a science fiction book? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. I've sort of I, I inadvertently dropped myself into um, some some hot topics uh, around the the interwebs here, um, and and it, and in the in the media as well. It, uh, you know, I wrote a character. I mean, interesting. Interestingly, the main character originally was not supposed to be the main character. Uh, uh, she so just her name took is, over, and and you didn't have any choice. Well, it was. It actually was. Uh, so I, the main character was supposed to be the CEO of the good company. And what I found was, I'm writing this. I was just having a hard time bringing this entire story together, and it wasn't ringing true to me. Um, and I and all of a sudden, I realized I was like, you know, well, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a test reader. I was like, you know, like her story is a lot more interesting and compelling than his is. Huh. And she go, and, and, he, and my friend said, you know, why don't you just swap the two? And I was like, hmm. Oh yes, that's perfect. And then it so slid I, into place. Huh? And then everything slid into place nicely. Cause his, his story, while the, it was really more about providing background as to why all this stuff is taking place, but it wasn't the most compelling, interesting you know, piece of, of, of storytelling. Hers was because she's the one sort of uncovering sort of this insidious plot and then getting chased and all the other stuff going on. So hers was much more interesting. Okay. So, so, so I fell into a female lead. Um, first off, I designed the character to be as interesting a character as I could think of. And she was an African-American female character. And that's, that's what was there. Her coming into the lead, you know, wasn't to make any sort of political statement or anything else. Um, it was just like, that's what's going to happen. And I didn't even realize that it was such a rare thing in sci-fi mm. until I had an interviewer uh, on a radio station out of Canada ask me that. 
<laughs> and I, I sort of played it off and, and I'm like, oh, I'm sure there's other people you know, that are doing that. Cause he was like, you know, you're ahead of your time. I'm, I was like, no, I'm, I don't think I am. Uh, and then I started to do research on it and realized that, uh, that actually, uh, women were dramatically underrepresented in, in sci-fi and it's gotten slightly better in the past, you know, few years, but, uh, it but seems st- like it's in an acceleration phase right now to me. I mean, the, uh, setting aside the fact that you have to pay for CBS All Access in the United States and everybody's pissed off about that, just like me, um, the the latest Star Trek series, uh, you know, has tons of really strong female characters. I mean, a, a, a female captain or admiral, I forget what, and the main character of the whole thing is female, even though she's got a man's name for some reason. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where I started reading a series of books called The uh, Murderbot Diaries, and I immediately assumed that the main character is female and uh, it's, it happens to be a robot, but I, it's a murder bot, but uh, I, it, and I told my husband about it. He's reading it along. And then I realized they never said a gender. So I think maybe it's starting to happen where, you know, you just generically assume something just like we used to always assume it, it must be a man if it's the captain, but that's not, it seems like it's moving. It just seems better to me. Yeah, it is. It, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, I, I did a, for a, a piece recently, uh, an article on uh, uh, sci-fi movies, and I looked at the top 200. The most st- stunning thing out of the top 200 um, in the research I did is that the movie Alien is not in the top mm-hmm. 200 grossing sci-fi movies of all time. It's 208 mm-hmm. Which wow. is, you know, one of the, I know, one of the most iconic sci-fi movies of all time. It's not because of us, because we bought all of the movies, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not my probably, favorite thing to watch, I got to tell right. you. But you, well, you can't say she's not a compelling uh, character, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely not. Um, uh, but, but I looked at the top 200, and, um, and out of those, uh, only uh, 19 fell uh, had, had women lead. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, now, most of those 15 out of the uh, out of the 19 fell within the, the last eight years. So, oh, wow. So wow. you're seeing, you know, a, a pretty dramatic uh, increase. And, you know, you got the Hunger Games. I mean, I'm counting the superhero movies in this as well. So um, you got Wonder Woman and um, and those type of things that are coming into play. The Divergent series uh, of movies is, is, is helping that along. And so you are starting to see that. I think people are starting to get more accepted of this, but as this is happening, you're also seeing this big dramatic pushback, uh, by people that are, you know, maybe sitting on the more misogynistic side of, of society. And, um, you, you had this thing called uh, Puppygate with the Hugo awards, uh, where a, a, a certain, uh, person, I, I don't even want to give him credit uh, because his, his views are so uh, sort of Neanderthal, uh, it, you know, w- w- had basically grown up this army of people to stack the slates of the Hugo Awards. So only their brand of science fiction, which was white male dominated sci-fi, uh, would win in these ca- in, oh, in certain wow. categories. I didn't hear about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and and then you had all this la- uh, backlash against Daisy Ridley and uh, and. Uh, the Ray character in the last Star Wars movie, um, and people were just hammering this movie over that. I'll be the first one to admit. I think there's plenty of reasons to hammer that movie. It was not a great movie. Which movie was that again? The um, the, uh, the the Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Okay. Um, 
you know, there are a number of reasons why it just fell short. I mean, the casino scene was whatever, but the, uh, but, but, you know, you know, having a, a woman lead in that should not have been one of the reasons ever that film, but these people are just going nuts over this. Well, you know, uh, and, but you bring that up. I was thinking along the same lines of the, the backlash of things like, um, oceans 11. Now there's oceans eight. Uh, that's on all female cast. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was the other one I was going to bring up. And now Ghostbusters was it was an okay movie. You, Kate McKinnon. Sorry, I will watch her in anything. She was hilarious. Right. But right. Ocean's Eight was fantastic. Every one of the female leads in that was was amazing. I mean, that was a you know for a silly movie, not for a it's not a serious genre or anything. But I enjoyed it a lot more than I enjoyed Ocean's Eleven, and I bet the misogynistic types thought that was terrible too, right? Yeah, it, it's. And, and you know my point. I mean, the the, the amount of sci-fi. Sci-fi is a dramatically growing genre, um, so it is on the rise. There is more sci-fi out there than ever, and it's like, I hate to tell you, misogynistic folks, fifteen percent, fifteen percent of the movies. That's what we're seeing right now. If that's too much for you, there's eighty-five percent of the movies you can go watch that, that that have that are white male dominated sci-fi. Go watch those. There's more than ever. So yeah, I don't know. There's even an African American superhero now, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, I, oh, oh my gosh! Oh, the horror! How could the that humanity. happen? Oh my gosh! Well, when uh, you brought up the fact that uh, you researched how many uh, science fiction books had female leads in them in in the top two hundred, uh, that brings up a, a question. It seems like you do a lot of research. Yes, I do, um, and part of it is is just curiosity. Uh, so, uh, this, this will be a topic for our next, um, for our next uh, interview on this. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I've done, I did a, a lot of research into, um, to how the brain works. And, uh, one of the things is, you know, researching, find, you know, going on little quests of it for information. Uh, those actually empower your brain to do more thinking. And so, uh, so researching, I find as being fun, I'll, there'll be something that doesn't make sense to me or something I want to know a little bit more about and I'll go research it. And I, and, uh, I like to have the answers. Um, the other, the other thing, by the way, that, that as I write the books, um, it's the sort of the hallmark uh, of the series is that I do my research into the technology. If I don't inherently know it, I do the research into it to make sure that it's correct. Uh, I, I, I believe that too many people these days get their learnings from fiction and so often the fiction is wrong. And I think it's, it's imperative for writers of either, uh, of either books or screenplays to get as much of the technology, the history, the realism components to get those, uh, you know, correct. Uh, cause when they don't, then people walk away thinking, Oh, like in the movie gravity, like that's, you know, the, the people bouncing around on tethers around the, the space shuttle, that's the way things happen. No, that's not the way things happen. Don't think that that, that is, those are the kind of things you want to, that I believe that you want to get right. So, you know, as well, an example, I, I am glad you brought up that specific point. Cause you had said that, that gravity really irritated you that specific scene uh with the with the uh with the tethers uh i don't want to spoil the movie but there there's a scene where the tether is stretched out and bouncing and stuff and it was the physics was just completely wrong and my husband lost his mind uh about that particular one yeah i don't think you could spoil the movie i think the movie was like spoiled itself <laughs> it so. was fun i liked it uh, <laughs> okay i I almost walked out of it. If I hadn't been with my wife, I literally would have walked out of the theater. 
uh, in the first five minutes because it's just like everything was so wrong about it. But anyways, we won't go there. Um, By the way, she did but, not get credit as being the lead, as I recall. I think she was no, best supporting actress or something. <laughs> right. I think I think Clooney was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's on. She's like 98 percent of the film is her. So, yeah. Right. Probably got paid less, too. Um, but, uh, but so, you know, I, like, you know, in, in the first book I, I interviewed, um, uh, particle physicists, I interviewed, Ooh. um, nu- nuclear forensic experts. Luckily, uh, the Lawrence Livermore lab is only, you know, like 45 minutes from my house. Ooh. It was, it was next to impossible to get somebody to talk to me about nuclear forensics and how nuclear bombs work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, but I was able to finally get some very nice people there, um, to meet with me, including their security officer who once he realized I wasn't some terrorist was, was totally okay with things. Hmm. Um, but I, but you know, I learned how you can tell where a, a nuclear bomb comes from. And that was a key component of the plot. Uh, so, um, so things like that. And in the second book I did, as I mentioned, I did a bunch of research on how the brain works and, uh, and what motivates people and what allows people to learn. And I've actually, you know, come up with some pretty interesting theories around it. And that's all they are at this point is theories, but they seem to make a ton of sense. And all of this is all about, you know, learning, doing the research, making sure that stuff is correct so that when readers or viewers uh, consume the fiction, that they've got, a, a you know, a, at least a pretty good approximation of what is real and what isn't uh, yeah, and, to the, and, and can understand it. To the audience, I uh, I made um, Darren listen to Dr. Gary's initial recording she made with us about memories and how she can implant false memories in people. And uh, But I think she might be a good connection for you when you're testing your theories, because the one thing I don't like about Marianne is that she never just makes stuff up. So if I ask her a question and she doesn't know the answer because of the research, if she doesn't have research to support what she's saying, she will not answer the question. And that's, I mean, I just make stuff up. I mean, I, I don't know what she is, all <laughs> this facts go. and data nonsense. So uh, I think she might be a good resource for you for at least finding what direction to go in your research. Oh, no, I'd love that. Yeah, yeah no, I'd yeah. Love, love an intro to her. I know I know what you're talking about, about digging into details, though. Um, one of my favorite rat holes I went down was I was I understood that two factor authentication uh, using your cell phone is an insecure method. And I also understood that that's a that should be a concern for uh, what happens with banking. And uh, I ended up writing like a 3000 word blog post on the NIST rules on two factor authentication quoting NISP special publication 800-63B. I just, I just started learning it. I was just like, oh, listen to this. Look at that. Oh, I learned this. Oh, hey, what about this? So you get, when you get that thread and you want to understand it, it's pretty fun. Yeah, well, and, and you know what that stems from is, um, is the chemical dopamine um, that gets released in your brain when you're presented with a challenge. And, uh, and part of my theory, by the way, is that dopamine equals brain power because your brain's not always at, um, you know, uh, working at 100% capacity. It doesn't make sense in nature for it to happen. So it re- you, know, you get this dopamine released in your, into your system. It spurs you on. It motivates you. And then when you solve it, when you actually find what you're looking for, you get this massive release that's the reward. It says, woohoo, I did this. Um, I've actually drawn on that uh, in, in creating fiction because it, the same thing occurs when you read fiction. And and what it, what happen or watch fiction and what happens is people start to put themselves in the place of the protagonist and they start to you know the protagonist faces these challenges these problems and the and the reader or the viewer is trying to figure out these problems along with the main character so this you get this dopamine 
release inside the reader or viewer's brain. And then the best thing is when they can solve it at the same time the character is. If you can time that out, then you <laughs> Not you too get, soon or too late. Well, that's it. If they do it too soon, it's like, oh, that was too easy. And if it's too late, they still get it. But it's it's you know it's a little bit of a miss. And and you know one of my favorite examples of that is the movie Django, which I think had was one of the best first half of a movies ever, and then the second <laughs> half got super cheeky. Uh, but um, but the you know the the scene where they they go into this Texas town and they go into a bar and then the sheriff comes out and, and uh, Christoph Wentz's character shoots the sheriff and you're like, how is he possibly going to get out of this? <laughs> and you're, and you're don't spoil the, too you, much of the movie now. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> I, and I won't, but, it, but it's like the dopamine just starts, starts going. And then when he does get out, you're just like, Oh my gosh, that is so great. <laughs> and, and by the way, it was one of the reasons why the Martian was so successful because it's challenge after challenge after challenge. Uh, that the main character faces and uh, that the Mark Watney character faces, and you're trying to solve these along with them. That was one of the very few books. I'm not a binge reader. And it was one of the very few books that kept me up until three or 4 AM in the morning reading it because I literally couldn't get to sleep because my mind's all hopped up on these chemicals. That <laughs> was releasing. I, uh, I actually read the Martian three times in one year. I've never read a book. I mean, there are a few books less than maybe three or four at most that I've read more than once. And I read that three times. In fact, I might just read it again. I just thought that was such a great book. It's also um, one of the few movies that was very well adapted, I think, to the book. Yeah, I mean, there were there were a couple little of little Hollywoodisms, but by and large, it was it was pretty much straight on. And, you know, the book itself, you know, again, as, as a stickler for technical realism, was was very much right on. There were only a very few things that were technically not quite accurate. Well, Andy but Weir very, said very he few. actually, I, in an interview, um, I saw him explain that there were two spots where he just completely says, yeah, I just did something that couldn't possibly ever happen. And it's actually, the, the main one is the initial storm that yes. that the the thing that skewers his suit that is basically why the entire problem happens that wouldn't have ever happened. No, and that actually I wrote a blog post about that. That was one of the again the very few technical issues, uh, and the primary reason is the pressure, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is so low that uh, I, I think I did the calculations out. I delved into my aerospace engineering background and 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 remembered the calculations, and it turned out that to, to get enough of a uh, a force to be able to pull something loose and do that. You're probably talking needing a wind speed in, in, in the range of like 3000 miles an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and the highest ever recorded on Mars is like a hundred, but a hundred miles an hour feels like a nice spring breeze because of the pressure is so low. Uh, so, um, so it would have taken, you know, a pretty significant amount to, to make that happen. But, but again, you know, that's like when you can, you're allowed to get away with a couple of those things it's when it's pervasive that it's problematic and, and it's certainly not the case with, uh, with the Martian. I mean, it was so much of the science was, was right on. It was just such a great, uh, plus he blows uh, himself off. I mean, that was fun too. <laughs> right, just right. So much about that. That movie was great. Now you place a lot of significance in your books on human space travel. And we've talked about going to Mars. Why do you believe that's important to do? Well, I, I don't think that robots can, can do everything. Number one. Um, Number two is we do have to find a way off the earth, um, whether we kill it in the next hundred years because we just absolutely, 
refuse to believe um, global warming, uh, or um, or it's uh, a few thousand years and things take longer to, to happen, and you just got this massive population growth. Um, you know, wh- whichever the case may be, we've got to be able to leave the planet because it cannot support us. Uh, and and so you, you have to be able to do that. And again, looking at science, robots can only you know can only do so many things. Having actual human eyes and hands, uh, being able to look at things and go outside the what would be mission parameters for something that's programmed, I think is critically important as well. And there's so many great places inside our solar system uh, to go find uh, and to go explore. And Mars is one of them. I think very, very cool. Uh, but there's a bunch of moons around Saturn and Jupiter gets a little messy because of the radiation. But, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's a, other you than know, that. Other than, other than that little thing, uh, you know, you've got, you've got uh, like Ceres in the, in the asteroid belt, um, you know, just a bunch of really great places to, to be able to, to go and explore. And I think having humans getting out there is, is going to be critically important. Well, bringing it back to uh, to movies and and representation of some some factual stuff, Apollo thirteen, when the the humans on Earth and the humans in space having to work together to fix the ship. Exactly. I mean, another one of those movies I could watch a hundred times and never get tired of. Um, was that one factual uh, enough for you? Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, that was that's, but it, but it's it's also Tom Hanks. Uh, he's. <laughs> So good at at what he does, Ron Howard. So good at what he does. They they don't make bad movies. Just period. They don't. Right. Uh, and, uh, and and so and I was actually at the space center while they were coming around doing um, location scouts and that kind of thing. And we got to meet them. And oh, wow. uh, you know, I mean, very very um, interesting stuff. Uh, and, um, and and they're they're so good at what they do. I I would have exp- I would have been sorely disappointed if it hadn't been perfect, and I think it was pretty much perfect. Oh wow, that's that's pretty cool. Well, I uh, I think I'm out of agenda items here, even though there are about 400 more things in your bio we could talk about. Um, but I do want to ask you a couple of questions. On you've mentioned your blog a couple of times. Where would people find that? So you could find that at tech22.com. That's t e k two two dot com. And my website is at darrenbeyer.com, D-A-R-R-E-N-B-E-Y-E-R. I will admit that I've, as I've been launching the second book, uh, I've been a little bit lax in getting articles out. So I'm trying to get that pe- picked back up again. But there's already a pretty good library. I've probably got 100-plus um, different articles. And what I'll do is I'll take something that's topical and apply my spin and my knowledge to it to provide a little bit more uh, insight into what's happening. So uh, what's the difference between what we would find on Tech22 and DarrenBuyer.com? Uh, DarrenBuyer.com is more my author website. Uh, there's not a whole lot there other than than saying here are my books and where you can find <laughs> <Buy> them. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then that links over to the blog, which is more about uh, space stories and stuff. Okay, great, great. So the, uh, the books are uh, called, uh, it's the Casimir Bridge. Casimir Bridge is one. And Pathogen Protocol is not out yet, right? They just launched. So literally okay. it's days old. Uh, and I've been getting some pretty good reviews on it. I'm, I think it's a, uh, it's a great uh, sequel. And this one, uh, I didn't get to sort of finish it, finish that story. But the, you know, the first one was really more about corporate greed and overreach and all that. And this, the second one starts to get more into the, oh, there's something else going on here that's bigger than humanity. And 
what's that all about and how does that delve into our origins? Uh, and then um, the third one um, starts to get, uh, you know, really fun in the backstory uh, about sort of where we came from, how it all came to be, and uh, and what are the ramifications for the future. So you're you're already writing the third one. Yeah, and I think I came to the realization that I can't fit it all into one book. <laughs> so I had originally planned for three books, and I think I've just resigned myself recently that I've got to make it four. Uh, oh, and no. then so this isn't going to be like Harry Potter Part A and B and, uh, and the, the fourth um, uh, Hunger Games book. No, I mean, it's going to be, yeah, there'll be four very, yeah, I mean, it'll be a, a series and, and I do have a definitive ending. It's a very natural ending. And then I've got plans for a sequel that takes place about 40 years uh, after this series ends. And I've also got a really cool idea around a prequel uh, that takes place in current day. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So the, one of the things I hate is when I find a really great author and they've got one book or maybe two. It's like, no, I've got to have more. So it sounds like you got enough in the pipeline. I have started to read Casimir Bridge and I'm definitely hooked already, but I'm a really slow reader. So you'll probably be done writing the prequel by the time I'm uh, into the second book. <laughs> uh, let's see. Can they people follow you on Twitter? Yeah, I've got uh, at Darren D. Buyer and I've got a Facebook page also at Darren D. Buyer and Tech 22 has a um, Facebook page as well. So um, every time I, I uh, write, an article on that. It gets launched on, on Facebook as well. Okay, great. Well, this has been so much fun. I can't, I can't wait to have you back to find out about all that brain stuff you were yucking about there. That'll be fun. Maybe we could do a twofer with Marianne where she tells you where you're wrong. Oh, I would love that. That would be absolutely <laughs> excellent. All right. Thanks for coming on the show, Darren. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal. Or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.